Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com slash Columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events. Now, on to this month's event podcast. All right, we're going to get started. This is Startup Grind. I am Ryan Frederick. I am a partner now at a digital consulting creation firm called AWH. I run the Columbus chapter, which essentially means... I reach out to people like Fred and say, hey, do you want to come and grab mics with me for an hour? I'll ask you questions that are reasonably smart. You'll provide answers that are somewhat smarter than the questions. And we banter back and forth for an hour about someone's experience, um, growing companies and doing other things in the community. So um, we certainly, um, Fred has certainly done a number of those things. So need to thank Rev1 for letting us come in here and set up shop to do this. Um, yeah, yay, Rev1. Um, hey, Bethany. There, there's Bethany George, everybody, if you don't know Bethany from Rev1. Oh, yes. Is, hey, Bethany, when's the last time that you got applause here at Rev1? Because I, I know, that's like awesome. Well, they were certainly clapping for you and not me. Uh, It's the holiday season. Let's give her another round of applause, folks. (laughs) You're welcome. Um, King Memory is a sponsor. Daryl Tanner has been a long-term supporter of GBQ, accounting firm. So if you need accounting, tax fraud, that sort of stuff, talk to the people at GBQ. Um, Dickinson Wright, Alex Brown. So if you need legal stuff, talk to Alex at, at uh, Dickinson Wright. He's helped us with some stuff and, and with IC Stars uh, stuff too. Um, yeah, without further ado, please help me welcome Fred Brothers. So I feel like we ought to clarify this from the beginning. I, I only came for the free pizza. And you beer. came for the free pizza and yeah, beer? Me too. That was what put me over the top. Me too. Oh, wait, I have to pay for it. So I guess it's not free. Even better. Right. Um, so you asked me an interesting question before. Your chair is up higher than mine, so I'm, I'm getting a little bit of a complex. I, I didn't do this. About chair height. <laughs> yeah, I think you did. I think somehow you sabotaged this, right? Exactly. Um, no, I'm not going to be on a throne. Yes, you are. Um, you came up to me and you said, are we supposed to talk people into entrepreneurship or out of entrepreneurship? Okay. So for those that might be thinking about... And his answer was yes. Um, yes, it was. Um, but I would like to talk about it very directly and frankly, and typically I will talk about it in terms of, I don't think most people are, are prepared for it. I don't think most people know what it means. I don't think most people understand what the journey is like from any perspective, emotionally, physically, you know, et cetera. Um, so even though we didn't have that as a topic and a question, I thought it was interesting enough to start with that. What would you tell someone that came up to you tonight and said, hey, I'm thinking about taking this leap into entrepreneurism and I'm going to start a company. What, what's the first thing you would tell them? Don't. And then you would, and what's the second thing you would tell them? 
if you has to, if you has to, have to ask that question, don't. And then after that, God. Um, being an entrepreneur is hard. It's harder than people think. It takes three times longer than any of your projections say. Um, you've got to want it bad. Um, the analogy that I draw is kind of, I, I like fast cars. Uh, and I've got a couple of them that have got a couple of horsepower. And what I always say is, if, if I talk to somebody else that's a car person, I don't have to explain the car because they intuitively get it. And if you're not a car person, I can't explain it to you. I can't explain why I pay a whole bunch more money for more horsepower, and it's a stupid car because it rides bumpy, but it goes like hell in a straight line. I can't explain it. And kind of the same thing is true with being an entrepreneur. Um, you've got to be really self-motivated. Um, you've got to be really comfortable with risk. You've got to be really comfortable with ambiguity and figuring things out. And uh, did I mention it's going to take three times longer than whatever your projection says? And um, you're not going to hit the projections. And if that sounds interesting, then maybe you got a chip in the game. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it took me, um, it's taken me 30 years of doing this, and I finally kind of figured out what I want to do when I grow up. And that's, I am an entrepreneur. And I know that because I've done multiple startup companies, and I've done a couple of long stints in the corporate world, and with no disrespect to the corporate world, especially the two that paid me a lot of money to do it when I did it, um, that's not my thing. And my thing is, I was at my desk this morning at 4 o'clock because we're trying to uh, get a transaction closed. And tomorrow I'll be at my desk at 4 o'clock because that's what it takes. And I don't so, know if that's a good answer, but... So why do it, especially at this point? So why, why do Columbus Works? Why do other, why initiate new things? Why have to be up at four o'clock in the morning? Why not just drive around in a fast car and go to Vegas for birthday parties? You did go to Vegas about this time last year for your birthday parties. Did recall, my right? wife plant this question? No, she did not. <laughs> okay, uh, first of all, she's smarter than me. Um, maybe, maybe she should be up here. Um, this is more of that I can't explain it to you if you're not one. Um, this is what I do. This is what I like to do. The people I know who are good at being entrepreneurs, um, they're driven to solve problems and figure things out. Um, you meet some folks who they think they're in it for the money. Uh, those usually don't work out. Uh, those folks don't work out because that's not a sustainable motivation. So let's talk about that for a okay. second because I, I also strongly believe that, that money is a derivative, mm -hmm. that you cannot start a company or any endeavor with, with the intent of getting filthy rich mm -hmm. because th that 
it almost never works out, yeah. right? That it has to be where you get all consumed with solving a problem that enough people value and care about that then the derivative is potentially doing well financially. But how do we get more people to not see entrepreneurism as the path to getting filthy rich versus solving a problem a lot of people care about? Okay. So, um, God, there are whole kinds of things in that. Um, first of all, we have, as, as a growth stage company ecosystem, as a venture capital community, whatever you want to call it, we've got this obsession with unicorns. Everybody talks, I, I was part of one. Uh, I was incredibly fortunate. I was part of a company called Check Free. Uh, I joined them when they were very small. Uh, we um, had a nice outcome. Uh, we IPO'd the company along the way, and in today's dollars, that counts as a unicorn. And then we sold it uh, seven years later to a really big company for uh, $4 billion. So I count, it, I count that I got both of my uh, I got my IPO merit badge and I got my unicorn merit badge all at the same company. Uh, but we focus too much on them and um, it's even worse in the valley than here. Uh, but the folks that do this for the money are not going to stick it out. The average duration between for a successful outcome is probably, and their stats on this, it's probably still seven years, the companies that I look at. Yeah, it's still seven to ten. Um, uh, with you know, three to four pivots, and a whole lot of the folks that started don't end up being the folks that are still there at the end. Um, the folks that, that stick with it are the folks that keep remaking themselves and keep changing as the, um, as the company grows and evolves and pivots. This stuff's hard. So why, so why are you not normal? Right? Why do this and why keep doing it? I don't know whether to ask my wife or my business partner that question, probably both of them. Um, what's, in, what's in your makeup and what's in, do you see in other sort of initiators, right, and in other entrepreneurs that makes them want to go through this, this struggle and this journey and go down this path and to keep grinding when everybody else looks at it and says, you're a moron. This is never going to work. This doesn't make sense, right? But yet we get up and we just keep doing it. Um, so there's something wrong with us. What's wrong with you? Because um, it's really freaking cool when you find a problem and solve it. Because it's really cool when you think you've got this idea and you start to get some receptivity and you start to get some traction. Um, and it's awesome when you actually get to build a company, whether you are uh, the founder or a co-founder, or you're early or you come in mid-stage. For some folks, it's very, some, look, some folks really like to get up and go to work at one of the large corporations and sit in a cubicle and count their days to retire. Well, actually, they probably don't really like it, but there are a lot of folks that do that. That's not my thing. That's not your thing. Uh, I've done the corporate gig twice, uh, once at a very, very senior level at a very, very big company. And it's a lot more fun to go into my office tomorrow and go, oh shit, the printer doesn't work. I guess I am tech support. Um, I guess I'm going to have to figure this out because there's nobody else that's going to come and fix it for me. Well, I could invite my kids to come in. but. That, 
what, what, when you reach middle age and you have teenagers, you call them tech support, because they are. But it's satisfying as hell. Um, uh, when, when I left Check Free, we were getting ready to sell the company uh, the second time. And um, I started a little consulting firm. And I swear to God, my motivation was, I can't think of anything else I want to do more. And um, it would be really fun to see if I've got what it takes to actually do this from the beginning. I'd been part of a small company that got big, but I wasn't the founder. I wasn't a co-founder. I wasn't there when it got founded. I came in when they already had a couple of million dollars in revenue and uh, helped grow it a bunch. But uh, I literally said to myself, I said, let's see what happens. Uh, let's see if you're really as good as you, you know, kind of hope you are. If you've ever seen the, the Teddy Roosevelt, the speech at the Sorbonne where he says, don't criticize the man in the arena sweating blood and et cetera, et cetera. That was, I literally like went and printed that out and I put it on the wall and I said, let's see if we can do this. Um, and it was stupid. We had no, it was irrational. Um, I had a little bit of money in the bank, but not enough to last a long time. We had no customers. Um, I made up a brand. I went to Kinko's and printed these horrible little business cards the night before I went on my first sales call. I've still got one of them. It's framed on the wall. Um, and I just started knocking on doors. And we got a customer and I got a partner. Um, he was also, he'd also left a big corporate gig. And um, about a month in, he comes to, we, we rented offices. We rented offices in a shared space, one of these shared space places. And uh, this is the dark ages, so um, this was, uh, 2005, so back in the dark ages, um, they had a real receptionist that answered the phone in your name, and you rented a couple of offices that um, were already furnished, and you got your own phone line, your own phone number. They were 1,100 bucks a month each. We had two of them, two little offices, and the first thing my partner does is quit on me because he had a wife and four kids and that, a mortgage in Dublin. That's good due diligence on the partner, clearly. He's still, he's still a friend of mine. I'll tell you the end of the story in a minute. Um, but a month in, I swear, we, we had just signed the dang leases on these two rooms, 1,100 bucks a piece. Had no capital, and I had, the printer had just gotten delivered. We bought a printer, it had just gotten delivered. I got this big ass box and he like quits and leaves. And I'm, because he got an offer for a job, the kind where they pay you every couple of weeks regularly. And he had, as I said, a wife and four kids and a mortgage up in Dublin, and he didn't have the stomach for it. He was scared, so he dove for cover. He you, should have bought a, you should have bought a smaller printer and I wouldn't have intimidated him so much. No, but this is the, I know, but this is the, but you gotta buy a printer, if you're gonna do this, buy the bigger printer. Right. Well, it makes, makes if you, you take one thing important. away, that might be it. If you're going to do this, buy the bigger printer. Buy the biggest printer you can afford. Don't be a wussy and buy the little baby inkjet printer because might it might not work. If you're going to do this, go all in. So I bought the big printer, and he left, and I'm sitting here with two damn offices that cost, my mortgage was probably less than either one of the rent on these things. I had no money. And um, I'm sitting there going, what, should I send the printer back? 
And? I sat there and I argued with myself because I could have gone and gotten a corporate job. I could have dove for cover. This, I swear to God, this is a true story. I sat there in my office, and then I went over and I sat in his office with the printer, because I hadn't opened the box yet, and I could get my money back. And then I went back, and I finally said, you know, F it, in for a penny, in for a pound. And I tore the top open on the printer, and I deadlifted the big-ass printer by myself onto the middle of his desk, because he wasn't going to use it now. And the printer, so, so we had a printer, a printer room, it was $1,100 a month. We didn't even, I, I, I went to the owner and I said, can I like have 50 bucks off because the printer's not going to talk to anybody on the phone? And he didn't think that was funny either. Um, and, you know, five and a half years later, we worked our asses off and we grew it. Um, I found new partners and we hired some employees and five and a half years later we had offices in Boston and Atlanta and Chicago and flyover country, I mean Columbus, Ohio. Um, and one of our biggest customers bought us. And I, crazy, this back to the risk tolerance thing, I, I took half of the consideration for the sale of the company in stock options on their publicly traded stock when it was at 22, and I sold most of them when it was 80. Um, all because I said, you know, screw it, I'm gonna open the printer. Um, it's truth, true story. So why do you do this stuff? I, I can't tell you. If, it, if, it's not, if it's not inside you, if you don't want to get up and go to work and solve the problem you're solving for the customers you're trying to solve, and the money be damned if you, do a, if you find a problem that the market values and you tell your story the right way and you solve a problem that has value and your customers like you, the money will come. The other problem I think that we see around this um, and it's back to this unicorn mania thing. Um, uh, I was part of a unicorn, but I didn't get filthy rich because I didn't have that much stock in it. Um, but I've been very blessed to, um, I've had like four singles and doubles. And so there's a lot of different ways you can do this. I don't view being an entrepreneur as you start here and you go to here and you sell the company for a billion dollars and you cash out and you buy an island. I actually um, got to have dinner with a guy last week that, um, he built a tech company, sold it at 45, he was now 67, and he really, really, really regretted that he'd never done anything else with his life. He sold the company and he made whatever, it was enough coin for him that he didn't need to ever work again. He still was a very nice quality of life, but now in his 60s, he says very painfully that he really regrets that he hadn't done it again. Well, he's probably bored. You know, and, and, and so I grew up in a very small town in upstate New York, and so I was bored a lot as a kid. And one of the things that I always said to myself was, when I get to be an adult, uh, when I have control over my own life, I'm never going to be bored. I look forward to when that happens for you. It, it, it probably won't ever, because I'm probably cursed now. Um, but that's one of the reasons, you know, that, that I did Icy Stars. And we've talked, yeah. you know, a lot about yeah. then trying to do you know, something socially good beyond something commercially good, right? 
So you probably have the same sort of curse, right? Yeah. That that board, boredom avoidance is like a real thing, right? That you, you begin to take on more than you can probably do a good job at, maybe in some weird warped way of trying to protect against being that person that 10 years later sort of goes, oh, I'm sort of bored sitting around, you know, in a leather chair smoking a big cigar, right? Um, so why go beyond commercial stuff and get into and talk a little bit about Columbus, Columbus Works and what you're doing and the path to, you know, where you are now and what the future is. So I'll let you just sort of rant on Columbus Works for, you know, okay. a couple of minutes. Okay. Um, I think I, as I was sitting here thinking and listening to you, I think I figured out the disease. Okay. The disease is, I bet I could solve that or I bet we could solve that or I want to see if I can go solve that. You see this problem, and sometimes it's that nobody else is solving it, and it doesn't matter if it's um, figuring out how to manufacture uh, furniture to suit, or it's solving workforce problems at a community college, or it's anything in between. Um, my problem, the reason why I disappoint my wife and I don't sit around in the leather chair smoking that cigar is, I see shit that's broken. Remember that movie? I see dead people. I see problems. This is my problem. This summarizes me as an entrepreneur. I see problems and I go, damn it, somebody should go fix that. And then it sits there and nobody does it. And I eventually go, well, damn it, somebody's got to do it. And I bet we could go fix it. Whether it's a for-profit thing or it's a non-profit thing or it's anything in between. So. That's kind of where Columbus Works came from. Columbus Works is a, um, uh, I've got a business partner, Katie Robinson, who um, has um, suffered long years and painful days putting up with me as we've kind of worked around this stuff. Um, we, were, we were doing some work in the inner city and we couldn't find a job placement program that was effective. And, we found one down in Cincinnati, it was awesome, called Cincinnati Works, it's incredibly effective. They've, over the last 20 years, they'd helped, they've helped 6,000 people whose families live in poverty to move from poverty to economic self-sufficiency. And we said, wow, that's cool, somebody should bring them to Columbus. And then nobody did it. And I got frustrated and I said, well, let's at least go down and see them. So I took a group of 10 of my friends down in a church bus and we went down there and spent a day with them and uh, I said somebody should bring them to Columbus and um, Gandhi said be the change you wish to see in the world and eventually we said okay I guess we're going to be the ones that bring it to Columbus so we brought the program here and we stood it up but it was just the beginning of like finding all these problems that are maddening that you go you know I got a team of pretty smart people. I bet we could solve that. So we had, it, it leads to all kinds of weird new problems to go solve. And it doesn't matter if you're chasing a for-profit thing or a non-profit thing. It's the, same, it's the same issue. You've got to have this burning in your belly to go solve this problem for customers um, in a way that makes economic sense. Uh, in this case, we're solving um, people who are, have opted out of the labor market. And um, we're trying to get them working. And we're trying to 
wrap a whole bunch of services around it. We had a, a cool thing the other night. We had a couple of the heads of a couple of the nonprofits that we work with together, and uh, one of them runs Columbus Works and places people in jobs, and another runs inner city daycare that take care of the same folks' kids. And I said, Gina, Beth, you guys ought to put your heads together because you kind of serve the same people. And I said, Gina, what's the worst commute one of your working poor parents has who brings the kids to the daycare every day? And Gina's got a PhD in business from Fisher College, so she's pretty smart. And she said, you won't believe me, but we've got a single mom that walks her daughter to the care center uh, every day and drops her off. And then she rides four buses to get to work. And then she does an eight and a half hour shift. And then she rides, anybody want to guess? Four buses to get back to the daycare center, pick her daughter up 12 hours later. And this is back to the whole solving problems thing and if you're fortunate enough that you have a little resources and you have uh, your you have above average problem solving skills and you have a couple of friends um, so Gina says this single mom who's raising this young daughter the daughter's out of the house 12 hours a day and the mom's riding on eight buses a day to work well you, well, you know she wants to work right God bless her right you know she wants to work. Would I'm not sure I would ride. How many of you would? You don't have to put your hands up. How many of you would ride four buses if it was to come here and do this every day, and then ride four buses home? So I turned to Beth and I said, Beth, we got any partner employers in that neighborhood? And she said, Yep. I said, Why don't we find her a different job? I'm sure at 12 hours a day, five days a week of commute, and then raising a daughter on her own, she doesn't have a hell of a lot of time to be out looking for a job and interviewing and riding three buses to go to interviews, right? And she said, yeah, well, it takes about two weeks. So that's, you know, it'll take them about four hours to do that. It'll take them about four hours to change that mom's life and her daughter's life because if she's got three last buses each way, and I'm not saying this Please don't, I say this in an amazed way. I don't say this in a self-aggrandized way. I'm, I'm mortified and embarrassed that 16% um, of the kids in Franklin County go to bed hungry at night, in spite of the fact that my friend Matt Hobash has spent his entire adult career building the most effective food bank in, in the one of the best, best in the nation. We still got kids that go hungry every night, and we got single moms that ride four buses to get to work, and so, some folks, they work really hard and they make a lot of money and then they give the money away. That's not our model. Our models take a little bit of the money you got and some of the friends you got and hopefully some of the stuff that you learned being successful and apply it to different things. We got a fintech startup going on right now that probably will be nine figures when it goes out. We're not talking about it very much. We've got a couple of nonprofits that we've started. We've got a social enterprise in between. Every one of them, the underlying theme is, um, I'm probably dumb. And I probably should like do that. I've got, I've got a really nice cigar collection. I don't ever hardly smoke any of them. I probably should just get the big leather chair. 
but I can't help it. I see problems. And Do you still have the big printer that you could put next to the big leather chair and I've just got, just have everything be big? I've got a bigger printer. Okay. It's awesome. But I'm a cheap bastard, so I bought it used on eBay for about a third of what it would cost normally. I'm not as cheap as you are, Andy. So we're having challenges right now with the seed stage. Um, there more investors and more firms are investing less frequently in the seed stage. Yeah. It's not just happening in Columbus, it's really happening globally. Yeah. Um, because investors are not getting returns on investing at the seed stage. So because they want to provide returns to their LPs, they're pulling back from investing at the seed stage because it's too volatile, it's too early, it's too, it's too everything, right? For them to be able to provide a return to their LPs to be able to raise another fund. And what managing a venture firm and fund is about yep. is really getting a management fee of managing the fund. Yep. And so if you want to keep getting that management fee, you have to raise another fund. So we're now broken sort of at the Especially seed. true if the return on the last fund wasn't that great, so your 20% wasn't that high. Exactly, right. So now we're, we're in a really challenging time sort of as, as a startup ecosystem globally where companies are now finding it harder and harder to raise money at the seed stage level. How, do you see a, a solution to this and, and a path forward or do you think this is sort of the new reality where raising money at the seed stage is going to be a Herculean effort from this point forward? That's the long, slow sigh. It's hard. It's even harder if you're in Columbus, Ohio, or Cleveland, Ohio, or Akron, or anywhere in flyover country, because money has a geographic bias. Um, we've looked at companies that are in, I've looked, uh, got a company in Akron that if they were in the valley, they'd be valued at 3x what they are. And they wouldn't struggle nearly as much. So. What that means is we got to work harder, and we got to be smarter. Um, the companies that understand, the management teams that actually understand the venture capital game, and actually package their company right, and they actually have substance behind it, tend to do okay. But I'm not sure that everybody understands how simple the venture capital game is. Um, it's really simple, it has a tone and a tenor to it, and if you don't speak the language and play the game, you're not going to get their money. And if you're not a good match, you're not going to get their money. I'm not just going to throw that out. I'll actually tell you what I think the game is and how it's played. Um, so every investor can tell you what stage they target, target uh, what verticals they target, um, what size of check they want to write, whether they're a control investor, an active investor, or a passive investor, and uh, if they're not investing their own money, if they've actually got uh, LPs, um, they can tell you what they sold the LPs. I'm an A stage, A round investor. We like to write checks for $500,000. Uh, we've got a uh, $10 million fund, and we seek a 5x return in eight years. Okay, all right. 
So if you're too early that you can't take a $500,000 check, you may not be a good fit. Um, but the really, really important part, the part that folks don't get about the game, they said, I'm looking for a, whatever I said, a 5x return in seven years. That's their investment thesis. So you've got to be able to tell a story concisely that they can understand, depending upon what their level of expertise and what you do is, um, that they can see a path that they can get that return. They, they told you all you need to know. Now all you got to do is tell them a story that they can relate to on how you help them get here from there, and they give you their money. And if you can't tell them a story on how you're going to help them get a 5x return in seven years, then you're not going to get their money, and it's that simple. But the venture capital game, they keep score with exits. This is one of the problems we sometimes have in Columbus. It's about exits. If you go to Silicon Valley, every firm that's on Fund 3 that's trying to go to Fund 4 can tell you um, what their track record has been. They publish their track record. They, most of them underperform. You inferred that, but didn't say it as explicitly as I am. Um, my advice in all of this, um, first of all, I'm not nearly smart enough to be a generalist venture investor. I'm, I, no disrespect to the folks that they look at a new garden hose and then they look at a deal that's on biotech and then they look at a deal that's farming and then they look at a deal that's renewable energy. There are a lot of people that are way smarter than I am. They're all way smarter than me because I have no freaking idea how to do that because I have no freaking idea how to evaluate them and figure out if there really is a market demand or not. Um, my advice to folks is find the VCs that understand your thingamadoogee because they understand those things. Um, they'll help you, they bring a network, they bring knowledge, and if you can't find them, keep looking. Um, because generalist investors only bring money. And then all they want to talk to you about is money. All they want to talk to you about is why your performance is not hitting their goal for the money. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, but if you find somebody that has expertise in your space, then their money's greener. Take their money at a lower valuation. Um, but you have to, this is really hard and it's hard to get companies funded, but it's hard to get companies funded because most of the ideas, there's not a line of sight to a, a big number, a big exit. So would you say one of the things that you see entrepreneurs uh, mostly getting wrong is not being very good storytellers about the problem they're solving how, why they're uniquely capable to solve it and how they're going to convert solving that problem into some sort of financial transaction at some point in the relatively near future, sub-decade. I, th I think it's two things and I think that's one. Um, let, me, let me table set the first issue. Um, We've got a great venture firm here in town called Drive Capital that everybody's heard of and everybody knows who Mark is. And um, Their thesis is, I don't want to talk to you unless I've got line of sight to a billion dollars. Exit. They don't say it exactly that way, but for the most part, um, it, it's, it's a variation on the Andreessen Horowitz 
uh, thesis, which is a very small number of the investments create the vast majority of the return in the venture capital industry. And probably 80% of venture firms underperform or give a shitty return on a risk-adjusted basis, and they do. Um, this is Columbus. Uh, with, with due respect to drive, um, this is Columbus, and I just drop a zero in my thinking. Uh, I think we should focus on companies that have line of sight to a $100 million exit um, because we can't build a track record in Columbus, Ohio as an entrepreneurial innovative venture community if we're going to do it on the basis of unicorns because we've only had two and I was part of the last one and it was 20 years before the most recent one. Um, if there are others, come by afterwards and tell me what they were because maybe there have been others It would actually make me happy if you told me we had other unicorns here. But, but we can do a whole lot of $100 million companies. There are ideas in this building that if the product is, if the solution is built right and the customers are served right and the story is told right, could have a nine-figure exit. And we could hit a bunch of singles and doubles and triples. And as we build a track record in Columbus, the money will come because the folks on the coasts, there's two things about venture money on the coasts. Um, number one, there's way too much of it, so they're all fighting for a small number of really good deals. Um, but they're, and I'm gonna say it this way on purpose, even though some of these folks are my friends, but they're lazy. Why the hell are they gonna get on a plane and fly for board meetings in flyover country if they could find an equally good company that's they drive to, right? You've gotta be better than them. I'm sorry, you live in Columbus, Ohio, and you're trying to do venture. You're trying to be gross dodge. You're gonna to have to work harder than the folks who live in Silicon Valley. You're gonna get a little bit of a lower, um, you're gonna get a little bit of a lower valuation, but they're also greedy. And so the lazy and the greedy work against each other because if they can get, uh, if, if you've got a great company and they can put money in on a $10 million pre, and the same company in Silicon Valley that they looked at, they got to put money in on a $30 million pre because the valuations are irrational out there. Maybe the greedy overcomes the lazy and they come invest here. They will invest here when they believe they can make money here. Okay, I can't remember what the other thing was that I said remember it, but this is even more important. They will invest here if they think they can make money here. If they're not coming here, it's because they, come on, you guys aren't sitting in this building because you're dumb. They're greedy. If they aren't coming here, it's because they don't believe they can make money here. Because we don't have a track record and we're not telling the stories right. So that is the second point. The second point is you've got to tell the story in such a way that the market is large enough and we have a specific enough a way that we're going the market is large enough, the need is defined enough, and we have a specific enough approach on how we're going to go after it that it's going to be bought, and we've got a plan and a structure and a pricing that we can grow this thing so that they can get a 5x return in seven years. Um, so, and most of the companies don't. Uh, I see it's a bifurcation between, I swear to God, in this day and age, I still see it's a really big market. We'll just get a small part of it, and it'll be great. 
If I had a cat box, I'd line it with the business plan on that one. But they've got to understand it too. And if you're dealing with generalists, you've got to tell the story in terms of how it's going to make them money and hit their target return. If you're lucky enough to find investors that understand, they, they will help you. We, I'm not smart enough to do anything outside of FinTech other than some of the social enterprise stuff trying to give a little bit back. Um, I don't know anything about those other things. One of the things that I think we have a, a, a challenge of here and probably anywhere, um, maybe outside of the Valley and, and maybe New York and Boston marginally too, is um, I was mentoring some of the companies in the FinTech 71 accelerator. And um, one of the companies um, had a pitch deck for customers, pros pr prospective customers, and they had an investor pitch deck. And I, and I said, this is the first time that I can remember talking to a startup that had different customer and investor pitch decks. And, it's actually, and that's actually what you need because you're not going to have the same conversation and you're not going to tell the same story to investors that you're going to tell to customers. Yet most startups in Columbus and outside of the coasts have one pitch deck. Wow. It's the pitch deck they go to, to pitch competitions with, and it's the pitch deck that they go to investors with, and it's the pitch deck they go to, to prospective prospects with, right? And it, it was refreshing to see, because I haven't seen it in a really long time, where a company had a separate pitch deck for investors from prospective customers. So um, they're different. You are right. They are different audiences. You need two decks. Deck number one is a customer deck, and it says... I can help you solve your pain. I, I understand your problem, and I'll help you solve it. I, I, I hate seeing a company where the, they, it, the, the, the pitch is, we built this really cool Hoosie Watt, and it's awesome because we're engineers, and it's cool, and all we need to do is find uh, market demand for it. Back to, back to the cat box. Uh-huh, back to the cat box. Um, I had a really smart buddy who had responsibility for $4 billion in revenue. And he liked to say it's a lot easier to sell painkillers than it is to sell vitamins. He didn't make that up. You all have heard that elsewhere. You need a painkiller deck. Hi, prospective customer. I understand your pain. I understand your problem. I've got an easy to understand way to solve it that makes economic sense for both of us. Then you need an investor deck. I can help you get to a 5x return in seven years. I know you probably don't know anything about my business, but I can break this thing down into such simple terms that somebody that doesn't understand it can grasp why it's going to make them a 5x return in seven years. Because they don't invest in this because they're trying to Whatever your product is, whether it's a cool new garden hose, or it's the cure for cancer, or it's a fertilizer, or it's anything else, they're not into fertilizer. They're into money. Come on, louder. Money. 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 Investors aren't into your thing. They're into money, unless they happen. You know, when I'm in fintech, I geek over fintech. Why? Because I like it, and I'm good at it. But if you tell me about your garden hose, I'm irrelevant. 
And if you're talking to a generalist investor um, who knows a little bit, they're talking to you for the money. And I just don't know how to tell those two stories in the same deck. I don't think that you can't. Well, I don't think that you can and I don't think that you should. Right? Because to your point, I don't think that investors care that much about what the product is. They don't care that much about what the vehicle is. They care about what the outcome can be. Yep. Right? And then they'll care about maybe what the product is and what the vehicle is to get to the outcome. Right? But if you can't tell the story that gets them to that place where there's going to be a financial transaction yep. for them, yep. they, don't, they don't care. Yeah. And they shouldn't care, really. Right? Because their focus is on that financial transaction, right? Um, and they don't care how, how they get there. Well, it's also, they, God, it's very rare that I talk to a good VC and I say, how does the deal flow? And they say, oh, man, we're hurting. We need more opportunities. We, we, we haven't gotten enough pitch decks lately. Um, most really good ones that I talk to look at 350 companies a year. And they're going to do like, you know, 15 investments or 10 investments. So if you are not on it, if your message is not on point, if it is not simple enough that somebody who knows a little something about your business, because they're smart people, but they're just not deep in what you do. If you are not on point with a simple message that they can understand and identify with emotionally, Think about that, 350 decks a year, there's 200 business days a year, give or take. Do the math. They're gonna spend 15 minutes on your opening. So it's, kind of, you know, it's like the resume story. You know, the HR person spends how many, how many, 20 seconds on a resume and they put it in the cat box? The same thing with pitch deck. Uh, don't do 16 page pitch decks. Don't do word walls. So we, um, I sent Fred this pretty exhaustive list of questions. Um, we've covered, I think, two of them. Um, so that was, that was, that was, I sort of sensed that was going to be fruitless time and effort on my part, but I didn't want to be you know, completely unprepared. Um, but it's, it's good. My iPad also just decided to shut off because apparently, since I wasn't referencing any of the questions, it figured, why am I here? Why am I working? Yeah. So it decided to shut off, too. Um, you should have given us some pizza. Uh, yes, I will. Um, so I'm going to throw it out to the group for, for questions here um, in a second. So, it, it, so we've been sort of hard on entrepreneurs, right? Sort of not pitching the right way, not telling an effective story, right? Not getting to the point of being investable. investable. Uh, what do you see in entrepreneurs mostly getting right? There are a lot of them that get stuff right. Um, that look, there are a lot of exits, there are a lot of small business um, creates 68% of the jobs in this country. Large corporations don't. It's one of the reasons why I was really, really, really happy in this tax bill, and I don't care which side of the aisle you are on, uh, the pass-through tax rate is crucial because if all we did was cut the tax rate for large corporations, publicly held, uh, for example, and we didn't cut it for entrepreneurs and small businesses, we do the country a disservice. Entrepreneurs drive the vast majority of the innovation and evolution in everything in this country. Um, 
I sold my small growth company to a gigantic company, and I've, I've now been part of two pretty good-sized companies. One had a billion dollars in revenue, and one has ten now. Um, and big companies do not innovate. Big companies do not change the world. They do not solve problems. What big companies do is they buy smaller companies and squeeze out the synergy and grow their stock price that way and drive off the innovators who come to places like this to solve problems because they like solving problems and they didn't like being stuck in the cube and they didn't like watching their friend get made into synergy even though they were really good at what they did but we wanted to turn them into EPS. Big corporations take solid performers and they turn them into earnings per share. Small companies... Did you just use Synergy? Uh-huh. Okay. I just oh, want yeah. to make sure that I heard that right. For oh, a second yeah. there, I thought... That Synergy is the really nice way of saying, I'm going to take away your living to drop you to the bottom line. It's a corporate term. Um, I've seen 10,000 plus people turned into Synergy. Stock price goes up. But, and, and no disrespect to the companies that do financial engineering, to the companies that roll up a market to anything. It's just not my thing. How many of you love what you do? Any of you that are fibbing or really don't should go do something else. And I, we, I, I don't want to end this on, I don't want to end this, and I do want to, I do want to let folks uh, ask questions, and I'll stick around for a few minutes. I don't, want to, I don't want folks to think I'm negative on entrepreneurialism because I'm not. I am an entrepreneur. I found, I'm 51 years old. I've finally figured out what I am. If what I'm working on right now doesn't work out, I'm going to cry like a baby for a couple of days, and I'm going to feel sorry for myself. I'll probably go work out a little harder than I have been, and I'm going to drive my car faster than I should and spend a, take my wife on a trip and spend a little more time with her, and then I'm going to find some next damn problem that I want to solve because this is what I do and this is who I am and I love it. I love solving this shit. If you're not intellectually curious about how to solve your problem, then you've either got the wrong problem or you're trying to do it wrong. But being an entrepreneur is awesome, but you have to do a lot of the things right if you're going to be a commercial success. You've got to do a lot of things right. You've got to find the right VCs. You've got to tell the right story. You've got to partner with the right people You've got to be willing to get rid of folks who aren't performing. What's one of the biggest things that they're not doing? You did ask me that early. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, two things. One, um, they mistakenly think you can turn C players into B players. You can't. You can't teach intelligence. Everybody has what God gave them. You can't te teach work ethic. Everybody has whatever they learned from their parents or their friends or in spite of them. You cannot teach those two things. You've got to screen for them. And then when you get people inside the company, if you, the minute you go, man, I think Ryan's going to have to leave. Then you do everything you can to move Ryan along to his next opportunity. Because you're not doing anybody a favor, and not, you don't. Not the first time I've heard that. I, me neither. Me neither. Um, but it's a waste of time to try and turn a C player into a B player. It doesn't work. And if you've got somebody in the organization that's not working as hard as you, it doesn't work. And your company, if it grows, if you're fortunate, 
if it grows, if you actually grab on uh, to a rocket tail, and let me tell you, going from two million to a billion in revenue and check-free in 11 years was a rocket. Jump on it, hold on tight, and see where it goes. But if you, if you end up in a company that's growing, the company is gonna outscale some of the folks that were really good before you added a zero to it. And they've gotta move on. Um, I'll tell you a story that might stick with you. When I, when I went from running, I'd been at Check Free and we were around 800 million when I left. It was right before we sold the company. And I started my little consulting firm and we, we were 15 people. We were really small numbers. And then uh, we sold the company to a publicly traded called FIS that was uh, five or six billion and has now grown to 10 billion. And I went there and I literally said to myself, oh my God, this is like 10 times bigger than any company I've ever worked at. Actually, I'd said that a couple of times at Check Free too because we kept getting bigger and bigger, but now, oh, I'm in the deep end of the pond because they've got six billion in revenue and the biggest pond I've ever played in was 750 million and I didn't even like the 750 that much. I liked it when it was smaller. So I literally said to myself, I said, self, every time you think a number, add a zero to it. They're 10 times. So every time I would have thunk a million when I was at the company with 700 million in revenue, uh, I said, okay, 10 million here. Every time I thought 10 million, I said 100 million. Every time I said 100 million, I said a billion. And it was a really, really simple thing, but it actually helped me be relevant in that sandbox. And you'd be amazed how many people can't do that. You'd be amazed how many, uh, if you're in a growth company, you'll be amazed. Uh, you'll get to watch it. I've seen it a couple of times. Um, your peers that can't scale as the company does. And you've got one of three choices. You can either let them stick around a lot longer than they should, and it'll be painful for all of you, or you can let a lot of folks, and, and then eventually they'll leave, and there'll be a lot of hard feelings, because it will have been a long, hard road. Or you can, um, like let a lot of those people stick around for a long time, then you're gonna fail. But hey, we're all in it together when we fail, right? So uh, that sucks. Um, or you can move them along to their next opportunity. Did any of you come see Pete Kite when he came and spoke? So Pete was here, Pete was the founder of Check Free and I worked with him for 11 years and he's where I learned this. If you've got somebody that's no longer a really good fit, you've gotta move them along to their next opportunity. Because they're going nowhere where you are, they're going nowhere with you. And they might go be a better fit. So it might be at Nationwide sitting in a cube, I don't know. But if you don't have the right talent, it's not gonna work. If you don't have the right story, it's not gonna work. If you don't have the right investors, it's not gonna work. If you're not really, if you don't really have a specific, um, specific plan on how you're gonna attack a real market opportunity that people value. What people value is what people are willing to pay for. Ask Yahoo how hard it is to get people to value something that you give them everything for free. Value is what somebody's willing to pay good money for. Um, so you've got to do all those things right. You've got to be constantly pairing the folks. But if you do, it can be a hell of a lot of fun. How much uh, does luck and good fortune enter into the equation? Oh, wow. 
my dad was a lot smarter than I was, than I am. My dad was a lot smarter than I am. And he used to say, um, if you have to pick between being good and being lucky, take lucky every time. Um, Do you believe that? Do you agree with that? But then there was a guy named Gary Player, if you like golf, that said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. So I would tell you that I've been lucky over and over and over again, but I worked my ass off in the process. I don't know. Have I been lucky? Yeah, hell yes. I've been very fortunate a couple of times. Um, uh, I'm not nearly smart enough to have charted the way this worked out, and it's been a total random walk anyway. Um, but uh, the minimum bid is you've got to work your butt off. You've got to get up when nobody else would want to. You've got to stay after nobody wanted to. You've got to pivot the company again. You've got to get rid of that person you really like and find somebody who's better. You've got to go begging for money. We were he and I were joking, our nonprofit stuff. Both of us are going to go get business cards that say beggar in chief. If you think it's hard asking people for money for value that you're going to bring them, try asking them just to give you money for free for some cause. It's like what do you think, 10 times harder? And, At least. And more distasteful? I'd rather sell electronic commerce all day long. You'd rather sell IT coding all day long, right? Way easier than begging people for money. Absolutely. I yeah. have to buy expensive boots just so I look you know, presentable for people that I'm begging for money from. You, you ought to try putting your chair up a little higher. It'll probably help. It probably would. I think somebody sabotaged me. Okay, on that note, we're going to throw it off for questions. Darren, over here in the corner, has mics. Raise your hand. He'll get you a mic so that we, everybody can hear. If not, there's more pizza. Kita. Hey, wait for the mic. <laughs> this isn't a question, but I've worked a lot with Fred, and I just wanted to, you know, the thing that when you were asking Ryan about... Uh, entrepreneurship and what drove uh, you know, the spirit of entrepreneurship. Something that I learned about you is that so much, like immediately my answer for you is service, like the sense of service. And I, you didn't really talk that much about that. And God, you're smirking. such a, you're such a butt kisser. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not seriously. It's like, that's a good question though. We really like that. Do you want to come up and give him a hug too? I'll do that. I'll later. take a hug okay. later. Yeah. Um, and he even used the slimming lens and videotaping this, so I'm going to look like I'm 160 and i got a six-pack. Uh, service. Let's talk about that for a minute. I'm going to talk about two things. Um, we talked about, and the money will come. Find something that customers want to buy that solves that pain and help make their life, job, world pain, whatever, better and they will share their money with you. Um, but also, um, I, met all, I, I personally know three billionaires, not even close, I'm not, don't think. Um, but I know three billionaires. I've worked with a crap load of people that are worth 100 million plus. I've worked with people at every stage. Um, I've seen plenty of assholes get ahead, but um, usually it doesn't work out long term. Um, they have to like you. You have to approach it 
wanting to serve a need and serve your customers. Um, a good buddy of mine liked to say, customers come first. We'd be in a meeting and a customer called and be like, customers come first. And he'd step out of the room. Why? Because customers come first. That's why. It's that simple. Don't make it more complicated. And if you, if you don't like your customers, or if they don't like you, it makes it harder. Um, I swear to God, half the money I've made in my career, whatever that is, um, part of it was because folks liked me. They, you know, good guys don't always finish last. Um, especially in Columbus, Ohio, this is a less vicious culture than in parts of New York City, which isn't nearly as vicious as people think it is, or LA, which is even more vicious than people think it is. Um, but you've got to, you nailed it, dude. You've got to approach your customers wanting to serve their needs, wanting to create value, wanting to um, uh, solve their pain, wanting to be fair, wanting to do it for a fair price. Do the right thing and then do it for a really long time. And treat the janitor better than you treat the CEO. I don't know if that's the right answer. It's worked out pretty good for me. Do you think when you've had some good fortune, like we've had, mm -hmm. and, and worked really hard to manifest a lot of that, do you then think that you have an obligation to then pay it forward and to make someone else's, if not many people's, existence better and to have a positive impact on them. Do you think it's an absolute obligation um, that people dig in and, and do Columbus works like stuff? No. Um. So you don't begrudge a billionaire who doesn't do anything positive with the money? He earned it, his money or her money, he or she earned it, and if they want to just buy big yachts and sail around the world, that's, that's just as okay as, as someone who sets up a, a foundation and, and puts a bunch of money in toward solving highly impactful human and societal problems. Um, I think you've got to look at it. it, it that's it, it's such it, a great it, question. It, 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 it feel, it feel, as I was saying it, it felt like a loaded question, like there's only one answer. <laughs> I feel like my chair is shrinking down. <laughs> I feel like I'm going... Um, through the lens of this world and what it uh, values and, you know, big fancy houses and cars and all that, the answer is no. Uh, it depends upon your personal belief system. My personal belief system, yeah, I think those folks are assholes. Um, I think the billionaire that's blowing around in his yacht, you know, the gas that he burns uh, could feed a whole bunch of starving kids. But you know, against that, I live in a pretty nice house, and we've also got a lake house, and I've got a couple of nice cars, so I try and balance that. Um, uh, I, I don't subscribe to the give everything to the poor and live in poverty, um, but I, we, we sure as hell in our household, uh, but we don't just give our money. Um, we give of our talent, time and hopefully our talents too. Um, so for us, it's a moral imperative. It's a moral imperative based upon our belief system. Um, and and it's, it's, for me, it's as much about 
a lot of people look through that, go with that question through the lens of money. And I actually don't approach it that way. I go at it through the lens of what your talents are. Because there are plenty of really bright, talented people who have skills that could uh, be put to use. And it's a lot harder, but a lot more effective if you use your talents than if you just write a check at the end of the year. Yeah, agreed. Is there a question over here? Yeah. So um, I find you very refreshing. I, You're kind. I, Thank I've you. I've been there, and I haven't been as successful as you have been. So I haven't met that success. But uh, you know, I, I laugh. I was just having this conversation this morning, and I somebody said, "Would you ever do this again?" And I said, "If my wife is in the room, no. <laughs> if my wife's not in the room, hell yes." So, uh, but it was always said, I started my company in 2005, so way long time ago in, in the history of things, that failure in the Midwest is always viewed as not acceptable, where failure on the coasts were more acceptable. People, sometimes they say out in Silicon Valley, if you don't have a failure under your belt, you don't really count. How is it now? How, how, how does, is the Midwest changed? Uh, is you know, how should a budding entrepreneur think about failure? And, uh, and if you could talk a little bit about the, the failure side of things. So I've heard the same things about what they say in the Valley. Um, this is just off the top of my head. Um, if you're trying to raise money with the people you know and if you took money from them and failed and you're trying to go back a second time, uh, we've got a company in, near Cleveland that um, we're invested in and they've taken money from every doctor and lawyer and a professional and wealthy person in a five county area. And every time they're getting a little tight on the next round, I tell them, guys, I swear to God, if this thing fails, you're gonna have to move out of the state. Um, which is why I hate money from friends and families and acquaintances. I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. I'm gonna come back to your question, I'm gonna, I wanna make this point. An investor that puts in $10,000 is gonna be a bigger pain in the ass to you than one that puts in a million. Because if somebody can afford to put in a million, they can afford to lose it. The guy or gal that puts in 10 grand is gonna be up your skirt or up your pants so bad all the time on your back, you're gonna hate it. And God help you if you've gotta see him at Thanksgiving. Um, if you take 10 years and you fail in a spectacularly large way and it cost a whole bunch of money to people who have put in follow on money and follow on money and follow on money and hung with you, uh, and then you fail, yeah, that's tough. Um, but I rarely meet an entrepreneur that you wouldn't stick a real dyed in the wool in their heart, what they do, why they do this, why they get up in the morning, why they go to work, why they love to do, that you couldn't stick, stick the word serial in front of the word entrepreneur. Um, serial entrepreneur. Do it um, He's asking about failures. It's okay to fail. You're, serial entrepreneurs do not all succeed. Now, you gotta, you gotta get on base more often than you strike out. Um, but I don't think the problem... But what's the difference between it being a badge of honor one place and being a scarlet letter someplace else? 
I, I think this is a little bit of flyover country story. Um, if we all move out to the valley and we all fail five times in a row, nobody's going to back our sixth company. Um, I agree with you, by the way. I think that the it's a little bit of a misnomer, and I think that if entrepreneurs do get funded for different companies, and if a previous company didn't have the outcome that they, they wanted, I don't think that their failure is getting rewarded. I think the fact that they know how to get investment is getting rewarded. So this They is know how to tell the story to get funded. So you, you've hit a little bit on one of my soapbox issues, which is I think in Columbus we dream up a lot of reasons why there's not a lot of capital chasing us. It couldn't possibly be because we don't have enough exits and track records. It couldn't possibly be that we don't understand how the venture capital game keeps score. It couldn't possibly be that um, we're not telling the story in a way that they can relate to and on how it's going to make. It couldn't possibly be those things. So it's got to be you know, geographic bias or it's got to be Columbus is just harder than everywhere else. It's, it's just about fundamentals. Um, what does the Columbus startup community need from the workforce development side? That's a great question. <coughs> um, I wish we taught classes on being an entrepreneur and what I wish this place ran a entrepreneur 101 and you'll have to find some you know overly enthusiastic folks to counter my you know kind of honesty. Um, I love being an entrepreneur. Uh, you know what I'm going to be tomorrow morning? An entrepreneur. You know what I'm going to do the day after that? An entrepreneur. If my current project falls all apart, you know what I'm going to do after that? Cry like a baby and then be an entrepreneur because I like doing this. It's really fun. Um, if you're not motivated by the same things, then you're in the wrong seat on the bus. But if you do like that, you're going to do it again. You're gonna, if you fail, you're going to do it again. You might go work at a corporate for a little while and you're going to hate it. And then you're going to leave and go do it again. Please help me thank Fred for joining us tonight. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for listening to this Startup Brand Columbus event podcast. We will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights. Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding. Keep grinding.